Well, I'm excited today that we're going to continue and actually finish the book of Judges today. We're going to look at the last three chapters of the entire book. While they are rather lengthy, we will be, rather than reading the entirety of the passage at the front of our message today, we'll be highlighting a handful of things. My hope is that you were able to take some time this past week and read these chapters, or that you'll be prompted after our uh, time in them to explore the story more thoroughly, because there's obviously far more to discover in God's Word, um, especially when we look at some of these longer passages, far more to discover than what we can talk about on a normal Sunday service. So, um, my hope is that you have your Bibles with you, as this is the most important thing we're going to do today. Um, The most important thing we'll do in our worship service is open up God's Word and hear directly from Him. The most important thing you'll do on any day is to open up his word and hear directly from him with confidence that this is his word, that he is faithful to accomplish what he sets out to do in the reading of it and in the, uh, the, the heart that longs to understand what God is saying to us this morning. Would you bow your heads one more time and pray with me before we dive into this story? Our Father, we will look at a very heavy passage this morning. There is rampant wickedness, there's chaos, there's war, there's just things that are unspeakable in these chapters, in this last narration of the time of the judges. Lord, it is hard for us as we look at this, and even as we look at where we are in the world today, it is hard for us at times to understand that you could still be working, you could still be moving, you could be drawing things to a wonderful conclusion while things look so dark and so chaotic and so wicked. So Lord, this morning, would you open our hearts to receive your word? Would you, as you always do, prove to be faithful in all that you say and all that you've done? And would you meet us in this time where we submit our hearts to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we look at Judges 19 and read a couple of passages from there, um, I'd like to share with you from the beginning of Charles Dickens' opening words to his classic, A Tale of Two Cities. Because it sounds a lot like what the book of Judges is actually going to be putting forth to us this morning. Dickens writes in the beginning of his novel, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Dickens' opening words to this book, A Tale of Two Cities, sounds a lot like what the book of Judges has been putting forth to us for these last 18 chapters. The book opened with a nation of Israel stepping into a new land that God had for them. The best of times. What they had waited for. This was a new generation. They had heard the stories of God's great salvation from Egypt and the warnings of disobedience of their parents. The age of wisdom. Their leader, Joshua, had put before them the charge to choose today whom they would serve, either the gods of Canaan or the Lord. It was the epoch of belief. 
their response to Joshua was, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods in the end of Joshua's book. There was light. There was hope. They had everything before them. They were going to heaven or at least a picture of it if they kept their eyes on the Lord. By the end of the book, we see that the period of the judges was the worst of times. It was the age of foolishness, of incredulity, of darkness and despair. Today we'll close the last narrative unit of this book as a sort of crescendo of wickedness. Last two weeks ago, rather, we observed a story of rampant idolatry in the nation. And today we'll observe the horror of the immorality that comes from that idolatry. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Because of this, love will be lost to selfishness. Justice will simply be a mask for unbalanced vengeance. And Israel discovers the truth all along, that they were their own worst enemy. Read with me from chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. In those days there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. She went away from him to his, her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and she was there four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servants and his couple, a couple of donkeys. She brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. It's interesting that these last two stories revolve around Levites, those who were from the chosen tribe to minister before the Lord on behalf of the people of God in the tabernacle. The Levites should have been a reminder to the people around them that the Lord who loves them and who had made a way for them to relate to him, to know him, and to love him was present with them. Instead, the Levite in this story acts contrary to the love that we should expect from someone whose role is to serve the people before the Lord. He has a concubine, basically a second-class wife, not as important, simply used to gratify the desires of her husband. It's never been God's design for marriage to involve any more than nor any different combination of one man and one woman for life. Every time we see marriage distorted in Scripture, it, like in this story, brings grief and pain and never displays God's love as it ought to. So she leaves him to go back home to her father. And after four months, he comes after her to speak kindly to her and hope to bring her back. The civil war of chapter 21 that we're going to see in a moment doesn't begin with a national conflict, but with a domestic dispute. This dispute snowballs into chaos for the whole nation, though, of course, the nation was primed for such an event for quite a while now. When we do what is right in our own eyes when we do not acknowledge the king that exists and who loves and rules us. Love, then, is only about the things that serve me and the goal of making my happiness supreme and of most importance. Love is not an action to benefit another in this case, but a word to use in association with my favorite idol. If, he were, if this Levite were to have come back to his father-in-law's home to speak kindly to her and to perhaps speak of his love for her, we're going to see throughout the rest of the story that that love for her was only self-centered. It was not sacrificial. It was not what we describe, what we see described, rather, in 1 Corinthians 13. 
The Levite did not love his concubine. In his mind, she existed for his pleasure. The scary thing this chapter shows us is the extent of how much this, his idea of love revolved around what he could get from her. So the father is actually all on board with reconciliation. He's hoping to avoid the cultural shame of his daughter being separated from the Levites. You can see that in the verses to follow where we stopped at verse 3. He's actually obnoxiously hospitable about keeping the Levite again and again until finally the Levite just says it's time to go. As they travel, they come to Jebus, or what we know as Jerusalem. And this is in verses 11 through 12, where we read an interesting conversation with some faithful words. So zoom down to uh, verse, uh, verse, sorry, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 19. When they were near Jebus, that day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. His master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. So some fateful words. He would rather go to Gibeah or Ramah because they belong to the tribe of Benjamin, to the nation of Israel. They're part of God's people. He would expect to be welcomed there, just as he was welcomed at his father-in-law's house, well taken care of. He'd like to avoid unpleasant interactions with the Canaanites, those who do not know the Lord and who are the, the wicked people of the land. But in fact, he finds something far worse at Gibeah than he would have had found if he had stayed in Jebus and listened to his servant. At Gibeah, God's people are actually going to out-Canaanite the Canaanites. Coming to Gibeah, they are not welcomed as they would have expected to be. They sat down in the open square at nighttime, thinking it was strange that no one would invite them to stay with them, but also thinking it would be perfectly safe to stay outside for the night. Before they could settle down, an old man, who himself was a sojourner from Ephraim, just like the Levite, finds them and brings them into his house and urges them not to sleep in the square. You can see that, um, it, the conversation there starting at verse 16 and going to verse 20. The old man's words become more weighty as the night continues. Thinking they were safe and sound, the reason for his warnings become very clear come verse 22. Read that along with me, if you will, to verse 30. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. The men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the, woman's came, well, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. There was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home, and 
When he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who said it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This horrific event that provokes the civil war to follow a gruesome callback to the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah that we could read about in Genesis chapter 19. It almost sounds word for word like the same story. The city has become the Sodom of Israel. They have become in the land the very thing they swore to destroy because they have abandoned the Lord and abandoned his love. In light of this horror, don't overlook the wickedness of the Levite and the old man. That's what the author wants us to emphasize and recognize here. The old man holds to the rules of hospitality for the Levite, doing everything he can to make sure that he has a pleasant stay. But in that, he breaks the basic concept of manhood and of fatherhood that should be very obvious to him. The Levite steps in and forces his wife, his concubine, out of the house to save himself from being raped by these wicked men. This is abominable, disgusting, shameful, nauseating behavior. We don't learn how to love when we live according to what is right in our own eyes. The exact opposite happens. When we live according to what is right in our own eyes, we abandon the God who is love And inevitably, others will suffer for that. These two men considered the greatest good to be their own self-preservation. And when there is no love, there is the worst kind of selfishness. The Levite's story begins with him taking a concubine rather than a full-fledged wife that he would bear more responsibility towards. She was more like a casual relationship than a serious, God-honoring, covenant-based marriage. All he wanted was whatever he could get from her. In the beginning of the relationship, it was just sex. But now it is sacrifice. You go die for me. I have nothing to give you because I have no love. That's what the Levite says to his concubine. As if the events that unfolded overnight weren't bad enough, the Levite shows no pity or sorrow over his dead companion the next morning. His words, get up, are infuriating. Doesn't he know what she's been through? Yes, he knows full well what she's been through because he knows what he has avoided. And apparently, he slept through the night just soundly and perfectly fine through the whole thing. Taking her back home, this already R-rated story goes even further as this callous Levite takes the last bit of dignity the girl had left by taking away her right to a proper burial. He uses her lifeless body as a shock factor to call the nation to pay back Gibeah for the wrong he says has actually been done to him. This is the result of there being no king in Israel and everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Wickedness, greed, evil, lust, and chaos. The Levite did not become the man he was overnight, however. Persistent, willful rejection of God's word has given way to this heinous, and loveless sin. This first chapter of the three that we're going to look at has the most stark representation of how 
wicked sin is and how lost we are when we do not acknowledge the king who rules and reigns and who has sent his son to die in our place. And this is what they hope to be the best of times, but actually the worst of times. The world we live in is not much different. It is the best of times and the worst of times. For all of human progress, we can't seem to stem the tide of human sin. For all of human progress, there's nothing that we can do to stop wicked people from doing wicked things. No matter what we teach them, no matter how many resources there are available to people, apart from the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have no hope at all. Those who do not live under the king do what is right in their own eyes. They say things like, let's allow certain sins, but not others. We hate sex trafficking, but we see nothing wrong with porn. We hate school shootings, but we see nothing wrong with the gruesome violence in video games and in movies. We do what is right in our own eyes, but nothing is ever consistent. We can easily call out the terrible, outright sin of gang rape in the middle of the night, but we will excuse the rejection and reject God's model for love and for marriage. Let's go to chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, and see how he spells this story out to the rest of the nation. Verse 1 of chapter 20, Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 men on foot, that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. The Levite's story leaves out any blame that would have indicted him personally. He doesn't mention forcing her out the door to take his place. He makes his case that he is the one who has ultimately been wronged and is justified for the very gruesome treatment of the girl's body at the end of his story. In the last story, and in this story, chapter 17 through 21, characters that are used in these stories are not named. And this shows us that this is what Levites were like in those days. They were loveless. This is what fathers were like. They were cowardly. This is how women were treated, unloved and with no dignity. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Freedom from God meant separation from love and attachment to selfishness. Israel needed a king who would save them, lead them, and most importantly, change them. Look at verses 8 through 48 here. We're not going to read them entirely, but what we'll see here is the plan that they come up with. Um, as in chapter 1, we see that Israel is unified in this chapter. They came up to Mizpah as one man because this horrific act has created a common enemy in Benjamin. They're ready to bring what they are convinced is justice 
down on Benjamin. So as we move from this concept of love being replaced by selfishness and when we do things right in our own eyes, we see in chapter 20 that now it moves over to a matter of justice and that justice is going to be a mask for vengeance and for raw, thoughtless, and wicked sin. Naturally, Benjamin refuses to give up the wicked men who did this terrible thing. You can see in the passage that we read, uh, verse 3, the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. They didn't go. They knew what was going to happen. Their desire to protect their own overshadows the wrong that was actually done in the first place. Clearly, they had no intention of punishing the city themselves, and they were enraged that someone would threaten one of their own. Well, this is not too far off from our own understanding. Parents, siblings, relatives, co-workers can all be fierce about protecting their own. So much so that often the sense of the wrong that person might have done is completely lost on them. Justice is blind, as they say. And Benjamin was blind to justice because pride was in the way. In battle, Benjamin has home field advantage. The, this nation of, the, the nation of Israel has mustered 400,000 men on foot to go against Benjamin at Gibeah, but Benjamin has home field advantage. They have the ability to hide in the hills. They rally an impressive force of 26,000, which is only a fraction compared to the 400,000 that the nation of Israel has come up with. But they have 26,000 skilled fighters who, are, who actually put to shame the army of 400,000 from the other 11 tribes. Look at verse 18 as they um, gather together. It says, The people of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for, the, for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Their appeal to the Lord is similar to what we saw all the way back all those weeks ago in Judges chapter 1. However, it's given more weight to the dramatic change that has actually happened in this nation. At the beginning, they approach God to walk in obedience to his command, to find out what they ought to do. They know that they're to go into the land of Canaan and wipe out all the nations, all the wicked people who God's judgment is coming upon. But here, Judah is leading a people who has already decided what they are going to do. Chapter 20 seems to have a lot of inquiring of the Lord going on, but his responses show that this is, there's a matter of sin on both sides for which discipline will come. The truth is, is that God always hears our prayers, right? He always can know what we're thinking, what we're doing, and what we're asking of him. And in this moment, in the moments leading, fall, to follow where Israel comes before the Lord to inquire of him what they sh how they should go about what they're going to do, he gives them very brief answers that we'll see are slightly different than the ones he gave when, when Israel was actually following the Lord. J.C. Ryle says, Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke prayer. And I would say, for Israel, it's the ladder that happened, that it was, in fact, sin choking their prayer. They had already decided, this is what will be just. We will go to war with Benjamin. God's people were never meant to go to war with each other, and yet this is what they had decided. So their prayer was choked up by their sin. God is not respected in this passage. He's not seen as the true king and the only just judge who can deal with this catastrophe. His words to them are simply, go as opposed to his promise heard in the beginning, I will be with you. 
Look at verses 26 through 28 of chapter 20. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Looking a little bit earlier, you see that the second time that they inquire of the Lord, he just simply says, go. And they lose terribly. They're, they're put to shame by Benjamin's greater skill and home field advantage. God speaks to them this third time and finally saying, I will give them into your hand now. And though there is greater weeping and there's, there's the evidence of, uh, there's the, the physical representation of repentance I don't know exactly that Israel is, is really weeping over the fact that they have been disobedient to God or the fact that they are losing so miserably to Benjamin. What God is doing is disciplining both the nation Israel and the tribe of Benjamin simultaneously. They divide their forces and separate Benjamin's strength at verse 29 through 45. You can read the battle there later on. Their forces are divided. They separate Benjamin's strength is so they can defeat them from their stronghold in the hills. But the truth of the victory is actually in verse 35, where it says, the Lord defeated Benjamin that day. Benjamin's forces are defeated. Israel continued the assault and killed everyone and everything. Look at verses 46 through 48. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor, So that's the the casualties of war. Those are the soldiers. Then verse 47, but 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, the men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. There's a small group of wicked, terrible men in Gibeah in those days that did this terrible thing to this poor woman and they wiped out almost the entire tribe of Benjamin for it. This is where we see the distorted, chaotic view of justice. Truthfully, this war should have never happened. The men of Gibeah should have been dealt with by Benjamin at large. When Benjamin refused, negotiations and exhortations to justice should have been made before Israel went to pick up their swords. We, like Israel, are easily rallied to war against each other before we go to war against our own sin. It is far easier for us to get excited about and feel passionate about what other people are doing wrong than the wrong and the sin in our own hearts. That's why Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount of before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, deal with the log that is in your own eye. Those words are so important for us. And they've always been true. When we take our eyes off of the true king and do what is right in our own eyes, we end up with a perverted version of justice that is truly just a mask for vengeance. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about the me monster and and Micah and the Levite being those who only chose things and made decisions based off of what benefit would come to them. 
to that me monster, to the me monsters of our old sinful nature as well, or to the nation that does what is right in their own eyes, it is essential to act aggressively on what they think is justice. Because they are not primarily focused on making sure that the wicked receive their punishment, but that they preserve their own way of life. What they think is right is emphasized. And that's what Israel did. And that's why they didn't listen to the Lord. That's why they they decided what they were going to do and then just asked the Lord for his blessing, asked him for a little bit of guidance. Here's what we're going to do, Lord. Now tell me how's the best way to do it. Who should go up first? It's eerie in those words when they call out to the Lord in, in verse 18 again, and they say, who shall go up first to fight against Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. They really ought to have remembered all the way back to, from generations earlier. Oh yeah, Judah did go up first into the land to defeat the Canaanites as God commanded us. It should have been a reminder to them that there was blessing and God was with them in those days. And in this action, God is not with them. You know, when someone says you're wrong, the sinful nature's response is always to justify itself and protect the sin that we love so much. When the me monster says I'm right, he thinks he has attained some divine right, as it were, to act according to what is right in his own eyes. Yesterday, I was listening to Tim Keller talk about vengeance, and he said that we're commanded to let the Lord avenge or bring justice rather than decide on our own how we can pay back the evil that's done to us. The reason Keller offers was because God alone has the right, the wisdom, and the means to justly deal vengeance to sinners. We don't know everything about the situation in which we were wronged, and we know much less about the person who has actually wronged us. God knows all things, and he is perfectly just. That's why we must, unlike Israel in this story, look totally to the Lord to complete justice so that he might bring vengeance, that he might bring justice in his way so that it is complete and it is right and it is not stained by the sinful hands of man. Today we spend a lot of time aggressively sharing our own opinions of right or wrong through social media. And even if we are able to communicate right and wrong according to God's word, it matters how we share it and why we share it. Why do we post the things online that we post? Even if they're true, even if they do glorify God, are we doing them in a way that loves our neighbor? And ultimately, our goal is to glorify God, right? But we also have to obey all of God's commands. We're going to see in a second here that Israel is going to obey the command to keep their vow, but they're also going to amend it so that they can fix their mistake. When we use our methods of communication, be it social media, face-to-face conversation, talking over the phone, when we use those and we desire to glorify God or we desire maybe even sinfully to put our own position forth, even if it does come from what we understand from the Bible, but if, if we warp it by saying, this is about me and about what I want to say and you've got to hear what I have to say because you're all wrong and dumb and I'm right and smart, we're missing the point of love and we're most certainly missing the point of justice when we do not look to the Lord alone. Particularly on social media, which as far as I understand, as a platform where no one has ever come to change their own mind or have their minds changed. It takes a king to sovereignly decree punishment for sin and to call people to repentance. Repentance only happens and repentance only sticks when it is the king himself that calls someone to turn from their sin. 
I can't tell you you need to deal with your pet sins before they destroy you and expect the words that come out of my mouth to have power. Rather, the spirit of the king needs to exhort you, and his spirit is with us. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We can't change our kids or our neighbors or our coworkers or our neighborhood or our city. Change only comes when our eyes turn from themselves to the king who communicates the seriousness of sin. Our job is to declare the gospel and to bear with people as they grasp at understanding it. But it is the work of the spirit to change hearts. We declare what Christ has done to give us grace and satisfied justice, and we communicate it with a motivation of love. How can one who would throw a woman between himself and a group of rapists repent from such wickedness? How can an army repent who, having defeated their foe, from there goes on to destroy the homes and families of their enemies needlessly? by turning their eyes from their own ways and fixing them on the Savior who was put on a cross to take a punishment he did not deserve, calling out, Father, forgive them. Jesus died for Levites like the one in our story today. He died for fathers like the ones in the story today. He died for gangs of wicked men, for nations that reject justice and slaughter helpless victims. Think in your mind today, whoever you could look at who is alive and walking on this earth today to who in your mind just personifies evil and wickedness. And I want to ask you this question as you think of that person. Could they repent and believe on Christ for salvation? If the Lord wants to save them, could he do it? The answer is yes. And the reason we know that is because we know who God is and we know who we are. We know that he saved us out of wicked, terrible sin. Paul, from his heart, cried out, I'm the chief of all sinners. And truly, as we look at our own sin, our own failings, and our own wanderings from God, we can say nothing less than that. No, Paul, I'm the chief of all sinners. And yet, when we take our eyes off the Lord and do what is right and think what is right in our own ways, we can look at someone else and say, actually, maybe they're the chief of all sinners. And the moment we do that, we lose our grasp on grace. We look at others and we see terrible sins and we look at our own and we think they're small. And all the things that we think are small sins can only be atoned for by the same crucified Savior. Jesus died for guys like this terrible Levite who says, no, you go take that terrible situation and protect me. He died for those kind of guys and he died for those of us who, boy, today all I can think about is maybe I've told a couple of lies or maybe I don't, I don't think I've done so bad. The truth is that sin before God is a rebellion and a terrible act that disregards the God of creation who lovingly made us to be in relationship with him. And so all sin before God is wicked and wrong and despicable. When we look at the Gibeites, when we look at the Levite, we look at the old man, we look at the father, we look at the nation of Israel and we say, oh, how could they do all these terrible things? We need to take a moment to look in our own hearts as well and recognize that apart from Christ, we're just as lost as they are. None are righteous, not even one. 
This king who was crucified is risen today. And having risen, he offers the gift of his life to all who would turn and believe in him. He changes hearts from that which dwelt in the Levite, the old men, the wicked fellows, the armies of Israel, your neighbor, your child, you. He changes hearts to new hearts that are born in love, that are aware of justice and God's version of justice, God's version of love, and that live by the grace of the king that loves them. Only the king can bring about justice against sinners. And he has chosen to offer escape to sinners by bringing justice on his only son, the spotless lamb of God. He alone can bring a new kingdom where his righteousness reigns supreme. We need the king. Our last chapter that we'll look at today is chapter 21. Having almost wiped out the entire tribe of Benjamin, down to only 600 men have remained. The nation realizes that they have messed up royally in these moments. Look at 21 verses 1 through 7. The men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. That happened way back in the beginning of chapter 20. We didn't see it there, but that's something that the author is saying this is what happened. Verse 2, the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? You can hear even in their cries how many times do they mention Israel as opposed to the amount of times they mention the Lord. They're not blaming themselves. They're not taking what is rightfully theirs to own the responsibility for. They are trying to blame the Lord for what they've done against Benjamin. Verse 4, the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. Again, their first response is, why has this happened? And God's silence seems to speak to them because you decided to take justice in your own hands against your own people. Look at verses 12 and 12. We're going to actually jump from 12 to 15 here. It says, They found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So they answer the question, Jabesh Gilead had not risen up to uh, work with us against Benjamin. And so we have every right to go and destroy them just like we promised. But when we do that, let's go ahead and save all the unmarried women so that we can use them and just give them away to the remaining Benjaminites so that we can restore the tribe of Benjamin. What kind of twisted reasoning is that? The solution to the fact that they've killed so many people is to just go kill more people. Wickedness compounds with wickedness over and over again when people do what is right in their own eyes. None of them will give their children to Mary Benjamin. They vowed to do that whatever clans did not come would also be destroyed. So Jabesh Gileath is wiped out in the name of keeping their vow. They amend it by saying, we're going to save these wives alive so that we can pass them, these future wives rather to onto Benjamin and In proclaiming their faithfulness to the vow, they break it by sparing these young women, which just ultimately shows that the unjust vow should have never been made in the first place. 
In their attempt to make things right for Benjamin, they cut off their nose to spite their face. In order to give life to another part of their people, they brought further death to their own people. Let's move down to verse 20 with me. We'll read 20 through 25. They commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would not be guilty now. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. The people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then we get those eerie words one last time as the last phrase in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel has recognized that they've gone way too far and done something so wrong in their attempt to bring justice. And now the attempts to bring restitution to Benjamin happen with the same degree of wickedness, compounding evil upon evil. This is the result of doing what is right in their own eyes, civil war, self-destruction. God's people do bear the responsibility for their sin. We are our own worst enemy. Our biggest issue, though, is that we are absolutely helpless to make things right. And Israel shows that here. 18th century theologian and philosopher G.K. Chesterton was asked by a reporter once what the problem was with society. If they could point to one thing, what is it that seems to be dragging society so down from bad to worse? And his simple response to the question, what is the problem? His answer was, I am takes only a moment of self-reflection to realize as we look at the state of the world around us that by our own personal sinning, even the likes of the Levite and his concubine before everything broke out into civil war, we are the problem. I am my own worst enemy. The sin that I need to be concerned about, most concerned about, is not first the sin of the world I live in, but it's the sin in my own heart. Because as I am here as an ambassador for Christ, the true king who is coming back, as I am here to be the messenger of his gospel that he is going to return and make all things right, sin in my own life stalls that mission. It distracts me to other things. It deadens my heart to the Lord. It it kills my love. It distorts justice. And it reveals that I am my own worst enemy. And yet... For all of that, brothers and sisters, we have a great hope in what is said at the end of this gruesome tale. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in their own eyes. An Old Testament reader of that might look at that and say, wow, this is just terrible. There's no hope at all. But we who have the full revelation of God's word know what it means when he says there's no king in Israel because today there is a king not only in Israel but everywhere. Christ reigns supreme all throughout the universe. Sin has been dealt with. And we are in a short time between when his work has been accomplished and when he will come back to bring the full effect of that. So Judges, for all its gruesome and terrible ending that it has here, even the it's 18 chapters before that of just rampant sin and idolatry leading to terrible immorality, We can look at this and say, this is where the world was headed, but then the king came. 
He died in the place of his people. He's risen again. There is hope because we have a king. The solution that the author points to alludes to David as well because he's going to be the next part of the story of Israel's history, but David alludes to Christ. He's the one who shows us that there's going to be an even greater king, far greater than David. Jesus will come and reign forever. In Christ, selfishness turns to true, pure love. Vengeance gives way to God's justice. The enemy of self is done away with, and we are made completely new in Christ. He's promised to be with us even to the end of the dark and sinful age that we're in. Though everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and embracing darkness to protect their sin and wickedness, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are in the best of times and the worst of times. The world is as sinful as ever, but the gospel is as powerful as ever. Christ is being rejected all around us, but all around the world, new believers are turning to Christ and being born again every single day meeting Jesus and walking with him in the light of his glory out of their darkness. We're not called only to endure in this darkness, but to herald the good news of the one who shines the light of the glory of God on all evil in this world and is ready to redeem the lost sinners that we know day by day. And as we see, as, as we work with them, as we are neighbors with them, as we pass them in the grocery store, Christ wants to redeem them and make them his and make them new. Don't shrink back from your calling in Christ to walk with him into the dark places of this world and proclaim light and life in the midst of chaos. Let the stories of judges stir in you. Consider the love and patience of God. Christ came to die for sinners like you and me and the Levite and the old man and the Gibeites and the people of Lima and of Ohio and of the United States and of the whole world. Christ is our king. We're going to sing here in a second. Our worth is not in what we own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Before we sing that song, I have a couple of reflection questions to offer you. And I'll just read them to you and we'll pray and we'll get into this last song and trust that the Lord is working in our hearts. But first, how is the king working his love in and through you? How do you see love growing? What is it that he's doing? He's stirring in you to love him first and to love neighbor, family, coworker, whoever you are around. Second, how is the king replacing desires for vengeance with his justice and righteousness? How is it when you're sinned against, how is it that you respond? Do you want to respond in vengeance? Do you want them to get what they deserve? Or do you see that you, like them, are sinners in need of a savior and trusting Christ for his justice to fall on him or, or to just trust that God will do what is right with the wickedness in the world? And lastly, how can you walk in the victory of Christ today over temptations for your own sin? We sin, we are our own worst enemy when it comes down to what condemns us before God. If we don't know Christ, it's our own sin. And yet, 
Christ is victorious today. The king is in this world. He is working on our behalf and he is drawing people to himself for his glory. Let me pray for you and we'll sing one last song. Father, thank you this morning that you, you, are, you have sent your son to be the king in the kingless kingdom that we live in. We thank you, Lord, that though we see sin run rampant, we hear, we read this story today and, and we, we shriek in disgust of how awful sinners can truly be. And, and then we look out our window and realize the same terrible stuff is going on today. Lord, fill us with a great hope that you are sending your son back again, that one day Christ will make all things right. Lord, remind us, though we wait for his return in some mysterious way, he is with us now. We thank you, Jesus, that you have never left us or forsook us. You are working in our midst. We have nothing to offer you, Lord, because just like all these terrible people in these stories, we are lost sinners. But because you have given us a new worth by your blood shed for us, we're made new. We are new creatures. We are not like what we were before. We may still struggle, but we have new life, new desires, a new power living inside of us, the Holy Spirit that can proclaim the truth of the gospel and your words change hearts for your glory. Lord, let us see that in our day. Let us see that in our midst for our joy and your glory. In Jesus